Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome back to Discovering the Old Testament, uh, episode 33, where we will spend another episode on the book of Isaiah. I plan on doing one last installment where we will take a look at the famous servant song of chapter 53. We could spend a lot more time on this book, but we must press on. Promises to keep, miles to go, and and all that. By this point, we are well beyond the time of Isaiah himself, but for the sake of convenience, since we don't have a name to hang on the author or authors of Second Isaiah, we'll continue to use the name Isaiah. We've talked in earlier podcasts about the different threats, the various enemies and dangers faced by Israel and Judah throughout the ministry traced by the book of Isaiah. At first, uh, it was the danger posed by the Assyrian Empire, on the one hand, and the lack of concern for the vulnerable that rendered uh, Judah open to divine retribution, on the other. Then the external threat becomes Babylon, first as a conqueror, then as a ruler. By this point, we are well into the Babylonian captivity, where the threat is now the pervasive influence of Babylonian religion and syncretism with uh, Judaism. Specifically, the enemy is idolatry. Chapter 44, in particular, has some wonderfully snide and biting sarcasm about idols fashioned by hand. One example is the following, describing someone who has just made an idol of wood and burned the leftover wood for warmth and cooking verses uh, uh, 18 through 20. They do not know, nor do they comprehend, for their eyes are shut so that they cannot see, and their minds as well so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. Now I shall make the rest of it an abomination, Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded mind has led him astray. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a fraud? Isaiah argues that the idol-maker gets more benefit from using the wood for a fire than from any god made out of it. This is the essential core of Isaiah's argument against fashioned idols. But this leaves us with a question. Is this really an accurate description of idolatry in ancient Mesopotamia? Are we dealing with a wooden idol or a straw man argument? It should come as no surprise whatsoever that Isaiah does not really present the Babylonian side completely. It is true that Babylonian religion is more nuanced and sophisticated than Isaiah makes it out to be, although one can make an argument that there are several things he gets right. Isaiah leaves out the fact that the problem of humans manufacturing gods was not lost on the Babylonians, nor was the idol considered in any sense divine unless it was subjected to certain rituals. 
When an idol was finished, it was subjected to a ritual called the opening of the mouth, which is described here in a passage from H.W.F. Sags. The divine image itself would be carved from a piece of wood and ornamented with metals and precious stones, a fact of which Isaiah made Mary play. For the Babylonians there was a definite point in the manufacture of the idol at which the deity took up his dwelling therein, and a ritual is known for the opening of the mouth. Two pots of holy water were provided in the workshop, and a preliminary washing of the mouth of the newly made image performed. This ritual uh, was known as the washing or opening of the mouth because the Babylonians believed that the wood gold-covered creation or fabricated idol did not actually possess any divine attributes until this ceremony was performed. One ancient Mesopotamian inscription records the vital words of this ritual. This statue cannot smell incense, drink water, or eat food without the opening of the mouth, it reads. The ceremony, which was held on a river bank, took two days. On the first day, the statue was set apart from its craftsmen, who were officially recognized as mere humans. Their tools would be sewn up in a sheep's carcass and thrown into the river, uh, which is the domain of the craftsman god Ea, who's also known as Anki. On the second day, the craftsman's hands were tied with red yarn and symbolically cut off with a wooden sword, while each craftsman swore, I did not make you, rather the craft god Enki made you. Now, there's an interesting side note here that there was a similar ritual which was performed at the completion of a building. Uh, most buildings were made of mud brick, and so what would be done was an image of the brick god was made and placed on a small raft and then sent away down the river. In so doing, with the departure of the brick god, the brickness of the building was expunged, and it was changed from an assemblage of brick into a single unified object. But Isaiah is claiming that ritual or no ritual, the idol-makers are men, after all. Other aspects of Isaiah's mockery of idol-making are just as appropriate. For instance, he derides the very idea that a piece of wood, even after the opening of the mouth, could be infused with the divine, pointing out that wood is wood is wood. This is a direct jab at contemporary pagan beliefs, which held that the wood of an idol possessed a particularly sacred nature. According to a written account of the opening of the mouth ritual, the statue was made from, quote, bright wood, like the spring of a stream, which is born in the pure heavens. It spreads out on the clean earth. Its branches grow up to heaven. Enki makes its roots drink up pure water from the underworld. The wood, in other words, was composed of elements of the three levels of the universe, heaven, earth, and the underworld. Isaiah caustically points out that it's just plain wood, Babylonian mythology notwithstanding. Wood is wood, period. Now, Isaiah further points out that the base material for these pagan idols is ultimately corruptible. 
yet again he is accurately criticizing pagan beliefs regarding statues in another Babylonian epic called the Era Epic, which is an 8th century BCE Mesopotamian story, there is a statue of the god Marduk, who's also known as Bel in, in Hebrew, and it's been damaged. And Marduk's enemy, Era, the god of plagues, uh, taunts him. Uh, Era says, Where is the wood, flesh of gods, suitable for the lord of the universe, the sacred tree, splendid stripling, perfect for lordship, whose roots thrust down a hundred leagues through the waters of the vast ocean to the depths of hell, whose crown brushed Anu's heaven on high, where Nindidum, great carpenter of my supreme deity, wielder of the building hatchet, um, who knows that tool, who makes it shine like the day, and puts its subjection at my feet, where is Kusigbanda? fashioner of God and man, whose hands are sacred. According to Mesopotamian belief, if any god's statue became corrupt, the god would temporarily abandon it. In the Era Epic, the face of Marduk's statue is covered with soot, and its clothing has deteriorated. When this occurs, it is believed to be tantamount to be happening to Marduk himself, and it leads Era to ask mockingly, What happened to your attire, to the insignia of your lordship, magnificent as the stars of the sky? It has been dirtied. What happened to the crown of your lordship, which made Ehalanki as bright as the Etemenanki? Its surface is shrouded over? The plague god then promises that he will take over when Marduk exits the decaying statue. In this instance, Isaiah is in effect playing the role of Era. He's pointing out the foolishness of pagan logic. If the statue is indwelt with Mesopotamia's most powerful god, Marduk, how then can it become corrupt? Why does it need humans to fix it up again? What is worse, Pagan belief maintained that a god could actually abandon the statue permanently. King Eshardon stated regarding some statues, the gods and goddesses who dwelt therein flew off like birds. Another Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, destroyed the temples and idols of Susa, uh, the capital of Elam, when he conquered the nation in the 7th century BCE. He records, I desecrated the sanctuaries of Elam and counted their gods and goddesses as powerless ghosts. The word ghost here is zakiku, which indicates the disembodied spirit of a god or goddess, now wandering helplessly about. If you really want to wander into an ancient setting of the Twilight Zone, Judaism had to contend with another piece of ambiguity, which is that their salvation, their redemption from exile, and their chance to start again, their deliverance, if you will, came about by means of a pagan king, Cyrus of Persia. 
The Babylonian Empire was overthrown by Cyrus of Persia in 539 BCE. In fact, his forces managed to sneak into Babylon via a culvert running through the walls. The city fell virtually without a fight. One of the first things that Cyrus did was to instigate a new policy of repatriation for exiled people who had been displaced by their erstwhile Babylonian conquerors. This included the Jews. Cyrus gave them permission to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. He even returned the sacred vessels that had been plundered from the temple when it was destroyed and set aside funds to assist with the rebuilding. This is a pretty well-documented aspect of Jewish history, which makes sense given its import. There are copies of the letter from Cyrus to the Jewish leaders preserved in the Old Testament, as well as another version given in Josephus. Cyrus himself had his general decree of repatriation inscribed on the famous Cyrus Cylinder, a slightly barrel-shaped clay tablet bearing his inscription in Babylonian cuneiform. This inscription is sometimes referred to as the first ever example of a government statement of religious freedom, which is almost certainly overstating things. Cyrus was not so much making a sweeping change as he was stating a policy about how he intended to run these new parts of his sprawling empire. Just to give you an idea, however, of how radical this idea was, the greatness of kings in the ancient world was often measured by how many other kings they had conquered and by how many other gods they had rendered homeless, as we saw with the inscriptions in the first part of this podcast. So a god whose temple was destroyed was also in exile after a fashion. Cyrus is, in effect, not only telling the peoples but their gods that they can go home. This seems like a very counterintuitive thing to do, but perhaps it's not too much to compare it with the U.S. effort to rebuild our former enemies, Germany and Japan, after World War II. Both policies turned out to be a good idea. This act of generosity, uh, while appreciated, it was not hard to imagine God using foreign nations and rulers to correct and chastise Israel, to literally and figuratively thrash her within an inch of her life. It was the kind of brutal, barbaric stuff one expected of foreign nations. But this was a totally different kettle of gefilte fish. Here was a pagan monarch doing the kinds of things that a Davidic monarch was supposed to do. In fact, building or rebuilding the temple was apparently considered by many to be the exclusive domain of the Davidic dynasty. How were the Jews supposed to think about this new benefactor? What kind of god was Yahweh if he had to turn to pagan kings to build his temple? Isaiah gives some voice to these concerns, but very quickly gets on board with this new, if unusual and unexpected, turn of events. Second Isaiah relentlessly repeats references to the Exodus, which he sees as one of the most important events not just in the history of Israel, but history, period. For Isaiah, deliverance is deliverance, and he makes the point that if God chooses to use a pagan monarch to repatriate the Jews, fine. In fact, Isaiah rather doubles down on this idea. 
He gives an oracle later in chapters 44 and 45 that not only acknowledges Cyrus as king, it does so using terms and motifs that were used to designate Babylonian kings, such as the imagery of Yahweh taking Cyrus by the right hand, which appears in many Babylonian kingship rituals, including the yearly Akitu festival. Isaiah's oracle gives Cyrus a name of honor and girds him about, which is an act consistent with royal investiture rituals. But what really leaps out is that Isaiah refers to Cyrus as the anointed of Yahweh. The Israelites were the only people in the ancient Near East that used anointing as a means of designated, designating their kings. Isaiah isn't just designating Cyrus as a king, he's designating him as a Jewish king. And yet, for all his enlightened ways, Cyrus remains a foreign ruler and a worshipper of foreign gods, including Marduk, the very god under whose auspices Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem in the first place. Now, I should point out that in this period of Old Testament history, anointing did not carry the salvific implications that it acquired later in the intertestamental period as a mark of messianic character. Anointing was a way to mark someone, to designate them for a specific task. Usually, but not always, that task was as king of Israel or Judah. In the case of Cyrus, in addition to his kingly designation, Isaiah is recognizing him as one destined to set Israel free. There is, however, one point on which God does not put Cyrus on par with other Jewish kings, and that is he never refers to Cyrus as his servant. This is a special designation that we'll discuss in a future podcast. The servant relationship with God, as described in the servant song, is a lifelong relationship. It's permanent. By not referring to Cyrus as such, God indicates that once Cyrus has done his bit, he and Yahweh will go their separate ways. Another interesting development is that God is, perhaps by necessity, a more universal God than before. Yes, God must break the link between Israel and the royal house of David and the Davidic monarchy by his acceptance of Cyrus as a Jewish king, but at the same time God also removes any pretense of political power or re-empowerment from Judah. They are no longer to have their own king, and in the years that followed, even after Judah gained independence after the Maccabean revolt, they conducted themselves as a theocracy. There was no king in the usual sense. The high priest was the highest officer and gradually acquired many of the trappings of kingship. But what kings Judah had were imposed from without. The new universality of God marks an important turning point in Jewish thought and had significant implications for the future of Judaism and Christianity. While first Isaiah makes the point that the world can only know peace when other nations have enjoyed the same kinds of blessings and law-giving experience that Israel has, this is an example of God actually using a foreign king for that purpose. God is stepping onto a larger stage, where more will be expected. It marks a point of transition from Yahweh as a local deity 
into a truly universal God, and, coming as it does from a conquered people who are going home only by the grace of a foreign ruler, it is an assertion of unparalleled audacity. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.